Our mission is really to, to change the build environment that exists today, right? We've been building the same way for 150 years, right? Two by fours, you know, 16 inches on center. So we're trying to take the friction out of that building process. You're listening to the Real Estate of Things podcast. Here we are again to start another great episode of the Real Estate of Things. I'm your host, Nate Tronfio with Lima One Capital, and I am really, really excited uh, to welcome Corey Donahue from Better Homes and a number of other companies uh, to impart some great knowledge. Uh, I call uh, Corey as a new nickname, a smooth operator, uh, just because he's such a smooth cat. But he's also a really great operator that has a ton of different experience. Uh, he's helped start a single-family institutional aggregator and buyer. He's flipped and, and done a ton of transactions throughout the last 20-plus years in real estate. He's now focused uh, adamantly in, in the new construction realm, uh, things related to net zero, energy efficient. He actually owns a, a manufacturer of SIPs, uh, structured insulated panels. So there's a lot of ground that we're going to cover here on a lot of things. But uh, first and foremost, Corey, welcome to the Real Estate of Things podcast, my man. Thanks, Nate. Pleasure to be here, man. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, right on. And Corey, Corey's we're good friends. So we're going to have some fun here. So first, man, you, you are going to bring some great perspective uh, for somebody that has not only helped start and work for and run uh, an institutional single family investor and, and, and aggregator, if you will, but you also now in many capacities work with them um, in, in different different realms. And so can you just sort of give us some perspective on what you've seen in the evolution of institutional single family investors and aggregators over the last number of years here? Yeah, I mean, I think, look, when, when we we started the business with with institutional capital entering the space and really creating what is now an institutional asset class of single family rentals. I've been a, a single family aggregator for my whole career, right? I bought, fixed, sold, bought, fixed, keep, you know, followed the the Burr concept, you know. Um, so did all the things that, you know, kind of a small starting entrepreneur would do. Uh, and then you know, I was buying foreclosure auction properties and all this distress back in 2008, 9, 10, 11. Um, and um, we've seen this massive evolution as institutional capital has come into our space. And was I was very fortunate uh, to be part of the group that really got Invitation Homes off the ground. Now Invitation Homes is, is of course, the largest single family operator uh, in the country, which by default means in the world. Um, so the, the evolution has really been um, technology enabling property management of scattered site, right? I mean, that's been the biggest challenge for the industry, right? We can all go buy houses. We can all go, <clears throat> you know, get them to a place where we put a tenant in them, but managing those residents to a, a, a place where customer service can be um, on the forefront, something that had never been done before. Uh, so managing rehab scattered, managing tenants scattered was not something that, uh, had been done before. So it was a, a crazy evolution of, of acquisition coming out of the Great Recession into stabilizing. You know, personally, we stabilized here in Florida about 13,000 houses. Um, so, I mean, it was insane. We started with zero assets in 2012, uh, middle of 2012. And <clears throat> by the middle of 14, we had bought 13,000 and put, you know, 11,000 tenants in. So it was, it was quite a ride. I mean, I, I don't even know how to say I, I couldn't imagine that ride. It's got to be some realm of a roller coaster that's going probably too fast to keep the train on the tracks. But clearly it's been done. It has continued to be done. And 
and replicate it. And again, that's where it's just excited to, you know, for, for our listeners here to really get inside and a little bit behind the scenes. So I want to talk a couple of things. Um, you said it fairly nonchalantly, and I'm going to exaggerate what you said, but you know, like the buying side of things is easy, right? Probably not so much, but like specifically buying from, you know, institutionally backed, um, you know, aggregator, like how does that really work? Like how, how do you go about buying that many homes, man? Just give us some of the behind the scenes on that. Yeah. So I think there's three channels, right? That have really developed over time. The first channel is a very traditional channel where you're making offers on properties that are listed with, you know, realtors, right? Um, the second is an off-market channel, which then the iBuyers have now taken a big hunk out of, right? And so you have kind of direct-to-consumer marketing and, and buying direct from consumers like, you know, Zillow Offers attempted to do, and OfferPad still does, um, and, you know, Open Door, of course. So, you know, and then they're, they're basically, their first line of defense and disposition is to go to the single family, large operators, large aggregators and, and move the, the houses to them. So I think there's, there's kind of the on market and the off market. And then you have like the foreclosure auction and non-performing loans kind of channel, right? Which hasn't really been in existence for a while because the market's been so hot, everything's been consumed in the other two channels, right? But I think we're going to head towards a market. And I think we'll spend some time talking about what's going on in the market today where that could change, right? And so the opportunities for smaller operators are significant because you have to look at institutional operators as an aircraft carrier, um, and the smaller operators are going to be the speedboats who can weave in and out and make you know do very very well, kind of winding in front of the aircraft carrier and maybe throwing off some off the back for letting them catch them right. And so, so I think that's the opportunity going forward for smaller operators. Well, that's that's uh, some some good insights, man, and certainly see uh, all those three strategies play out. I think there's also the you know, a, a lot of times where, you know, rising tides have lifted all ships and whether they're the small boats or, or the large vessels, um, a lot of times I've seen, you know, a lot of the aggregator relationships with smaller operators and they're buying their finished product and plugging into that. Maybe a little harder to do now um, because the frothiness of the market is gone, but maybe a story for a different day. So you touched on something that I can't avoid and I have to hear your insights on. So what is Corey Donahue's perspective on iBuyers? And can they be successful, possibly, maybe, moving forward? So, you know, I, I've got some pretty deep insight in that I was a, a, a early, um, an early uh, executive in one of the large ones. Um, and so, you know, the strategy is a tough strategy, right? And it's such a capitally intensive strategy that when margins are tight, it's really challenging to, um, to operate in a productive and in a financially beneficial way. And I think we've seen that, right? We've seen the collapse of Zillow offers. Um, we've seen Open Door and OfferPad stock just get completely correct, corrected down to it's almost nothing. So I think there's a platform belief that I don't I've never really believed in that there's, if you control all of the transactions, it spins off enough of kind of ancillary revenue and ancillary businesses that it all makes sense. Uh, you know, title companies and rehab businesses and things like that. I don't know, like they actually produce enough revenue to make up for a miss, right? Like, especially in a falling knife market, like we're in today. And, and we're in this place where we don't know if it's really a falling knife. 
is it, isn't it, right? Like one minute, the eastern side of the country, the values are still going up and the west side of the country, they're plummeting. The next minute, everybody's down. The next minute, everybody's up. Like, you know, the data seems to bounce all over the place based on what's going on with the Fed or consumer confidence, whatever. So um, long-winded answer, I think there is a place for iBuyers, but I think those iBuyers, over time, my opinion, for what it's worth, my little brain, is that that has to become more of a transaction-based business where there's a fee structure involved rather than taking it on a balance sheet and then doing the physical uh, work it takes to do value add and then exit it very much feels like it needs to be transactional uh, and be fee-based because it, I just don't know how you balance sheet that many billions of dollars with that teeny tiny of margin that disappears instantly with anything that isn't perfect, right? And so I think that somebody's going to figure it out, but do I think that what we know as iBuyers today are going to be here in, in a very productive way long-term? I think they have to evolve. And I think we're seeing some evolution in one of the big ones, right? I mean, they're, they're starting to use um, their vertically integrated structure to, to venture out into other pieces of business like rehab, like like home improvement. Um, so I think those things and pivoting and you know are, are pretty smart. But I, I don't I, what we've known traditionally as the iBuyer business, I stepped away from because I didn't really believe in it when I saw it continue to evolve. And so um, that's my take. Like I don't. I don't know how that business survives with that much balance sheet risk. No, I think I think there's some great perspective, and obviously from someone that that uh, has seen a number of sides from an inside and outside, uh, it's 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 a tough business in an ever changing market. And look, the market's going to continue to be ever changing, you know. But in the last number of years, on this big run up, everything up and to the right, you know, you would argue, and, and I hear from a, a lot of people that I talk to, flippers per se, you know, nine out of ten deals were profitable. Yeah, it's pretty easy to create some really scalable business models on that. But even if you, you know, say what most people lie to me about and say, okay, well now maybe seven out of ten are profitable, and again, even that's questionable. But even that that is a big differentiation when, like you said, billions of dollars on balance sheet, and you can't move and get through, you know, scattered site management, construction rehab, and dispositions quick enough to to keep up with this very fast moving market, man. So. Uh, very much uh, agree with you there. So if we just take a step back, you know, you can include iBuyers or just call it institutional operators in the single family investing space. What are some of the key advantages that they do have over your small mom and pop? And there's some obvious ones, so call that out, but just I'm, I'm interested in your perspective on it. Yeah, I mean, the obvious one is financing, right? I mean, like, you know, when you can go to endowments and you can go directly to these huge capital sources and you have enough scale that you're securitizing, you know, 500 million to a billion dollars at a time. It's really tough for a small operator to get the debt that, that the large operator can attain, right. In terms of rate and term, um, you know, and I think now there's enough platform development that, you know, they also have other economies of scale, right. So they, they can reduce their operating expenses because when you have several thousand units in a particular MSA to manage, it takes a lot less people, right, to manage several thousand units on a per unit basis than it does if you only have several hundred, right? Because you always have your fixed cost of it takes, you know, if you have one house, you have to have someone to manage it. Or if you have a thousand houses, 
you know, you have to have a couple of people to manage them, right? So the economies of scale are obvious. Um, I think that's the biggest thing, right? It's cost of capital, economies of scale. But, but I think that um, what they can't do is operate outside of their box, right? And so I think smaller operators have an have a opportunity um, to really operate outside of the boxes. But we have to be pros, right? Like I would consider myself now a smaller operator. I've kind of stepped away from the institutional space at this point. Um, and we have to know what the world looks like in the institutional um, space as it relates to especially our macro and micro markets. Um, and then look where their opportunities operate and there they exist. I mean, you know, creative financing deals exist, um, buying things that don't fit everybody's box. Um, and right now we're kind of in this mode where distress is starting to show up again and we can, there are distress sales happening where we haven't had distress. And so kind of what I said earlier, that other channel of direct to consumer that does involve a lot of distress, right? And, and that's when that becomes, um, significant opportunity and that's what we're kind of looking at now right of course we're building and um we're very very focused on esg and on doing something better than we've historically done in the building um, world but uh i think you're you're going to see more and more distress coming and it's really tough for large institutional operators to um, be able to navigate through some of that distress especially on the front end yeah, I mean, some, some really great op insights there. But before I transition to the new construction side, which I want to talk a lot about with you, man, and excited for you to share what you're doing there and, and your insights specifically, I, I got one last question on this. You touched on it a couple of times. So we just hit a lot of like the opportunities and maybe the advantages that large institutional operators may have. Uh, but but specifically on the challenges side, you said it earlier, let's call it sort of all things of management on scattered sites. So whether it's like, if somebody's just doing some repositioning, renovation, construction, but also just sheer property management, just can you dive in a little bit to just some of the specific challenges that you've seen there and even how somebody of that size and scale could potentially overcome them or, or maybe in some scenarios that just can't overcome some of these big issues? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest issue is, is a relationship with a resident, right? I mean, and you know, we spent enough time with enough residents, especially recently, um, of the large institutional owners to know that very few of them are, are really happy. Right. And I don't know that traditionally people are usually happy with their landlord, right? Cause it's, it's kind of diametrically opposed. Um, but I think the biggest challenge that still is, exists in the industry is how do you create a brand that people believe in that are going to be your customer, right? So the resident is the customer of the sense of the institution, right? Kind of has two, it has the investor customer and it has the resident customer, but the resident customer allows the investor to, to create a return, to have a return. So, um, I mean, I just literally, right before we started this podcast, I was out meeting with a resident of one of the large institutional owners and it's the same story, right? Like you're, the institutional owner is, is, motivated to minimize the expense line, right? And the resident has things that are real problems that they need fixed. And so what happens is the institutional owner oftentimes gets the bottom of the barrel repair guy, right? Which doesn't present well to the resident. And then the resident gets frustrated, right? And it's, so it's the R&M piece of this is still a huge challenge. And that's where the customer service piece really comes in. And then the other side is, you know, with economies of scale, if you 
if you scale too much and you have too big of a portfolio and not enough people to communicate with residents effectively, even if it's simply over email or text, you lose the customer experience there too. And I think those are like, I, they're glaring in my face every day with one of our business lines. And, um, you know, that's where, again, I think there's a differentiation that can happen for a smaller operator, even a medium sized operator to create a real brand around great resident experience. And I know that some of the big operators love to say they have it, but I can tell you from working directly with those residents every single day, it's just not there yet. Man, it's, uh, it's really interesting stuff. I think what's, what's funny is, is listeners listen to you. You, you've, you're very conditioned in making sure you even talk about this topic in the realms of customer experience. You know, what I always pick up on, you know, and I've probably learned a lot from you on this, honestly, is they're not tenants, they're residents, because residents has a different connotation with they have they have to live in a home, not just, oh, they're just a tenant that pays a, you know, pays a, a check to you and you make money and da, 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 da. So I think it's just a, a way of trying to create culture and an experience. But Man, it's really easy to say that fast, but it's really hard to do fast with all the things moving, especially the size and scale. When when you get thousands and thousands and thousands of doors and people and residents uh, that live there, then that's what they call their home. And so I'm sure it's always going to be the biggest challenge. I couldn't imagine that there's a bigger challenge than that unless another pandemic or something comes and hits us all in the gut and face. But um, thank you for sharing that. Let's let's depart from the institutional world a little bit, although I think we'll still dance on on some of that some. But I want to talk about better homes um, and better homes for you spelt with only one E. But uh, why is your better homes a better product? And by definition of that question, just help help educate a little bit on what better homes does uh, in order to provide a better product to the market. The real quick answer is we build an energy efficient home that is constructed to last 300 years instead of 100. That's what we do. And with that um, comes lower operating expenses, which means it's cheaper to live in our homes, mostly due to energy efficiency. But you know, our mission is really to, to change the build environment that exists today, right? We've been building the same way for 150 years, right? Two by fours, you know, 16 inches on center. You know, here in Florida, we build with CBS block construction because we have bugs and moisture, but um, it's been the same thing, right? I mean, you, up north in the northeast where I grew up and where you are, it's all framing, right? Down here, it's all block. But at the end of the day, it's still a very porous house that allows airflow through it all the time that is super energy efficient and takes 70 different trades to get to an end. Um, And so we're trying to take the friction out of that building process. Um, And and I looked at everything. I mean, I've looked at all the modular construction methods. I've looked at a lot of the on-site stuff like 3D printing. Um, we've looked at all the new technologies and kind of where we landed so far on our launch, you know, been over two years now was structural insulated panels because they give us the opportunity to do kind of a hybrid offsite construction and then build a house like Legos that is a better built house. It's more hurricane resistant. It's more bug resistant. It's more moisture resistant. It's higher energy efficiency. And then when you add the right fit and finish on the inside, you end up getting to this place where you can certify uh, a new home to the net zero energy ready standard that is uh, provided by the Department of Energy. So, you know, zero energy ready is basically Energy Star 
indoor air plus, which we can talk about healthy homes and why that's important, especially coming out of a pandemic. Um, so there's just multiple certifications that are involved to get that. And for me, it's about having a mission that's greater than just providing a rental return, right? Like getting to a place of a brand and, and you know, we've, we talked about what it takes to, a, to get a brand and, and, you know, a customer experience briefly, but I think everybody's been spoiled because we have a housing shortage and that housing shortage isn't going away anytime soon, which is why it's great. Like real estate in general, if you're just relatively smart about how you do things, it's the best thing you could possibly be involved in for a career, right? Especially if you're buying and holding assets. So, you know, for us, it's very long-term thinking. We're very focused on creating a differentiated resident experience that starts with the actual construction of the home. And then of course, in the subdivisions, as we build them out, there's a active lifestyle and a, an ESG, the S in the ESG, the social aspect of ESG focus and how we design our communities as well. That's awesome, man. And you opened up a lot of doors that we're going to, we're going to have to start walking into here. So let's hit that last one first. So ESG for somebody that doesn't fully understand what it is, break it down and then continue to go into a little bit more detail on how you're filling some voids in, in operating with that sort of as a, as a core focus in mind. Sure. So ESG stands for environmental social governance and, um, it's three different things. So the, the environmental piece, right, which we all kind of probably have the most experience in ESG with, we've, we've heard a lot about it's carbon neutrality. It's working towards changing the carbon footprint, uh, which real estate is the largest culprit, right? Then the S is social, right? So it, that brings in all of the social things we hear about in the news all the time, right? So we're, it's, it's talking about um, equality and, and really trying to have a people effect. To me, it's a people effect, right? It's, it's not just a commodity. It's, it's the people part, right? The S is to me is the people part, like doing the right thing by people. And then G is being governed by those things, right? And having a, a very specific business plan and written plan that drives your business and is governs your business to really be focused on making a difference, making change, you know, with the E and the S. So that's the easiest way I can explain it. Um, it's a big focus of institutional players as well. It's gotten a lot of, since COVID and since a lot of the social issues we've had in our country, uh, it's gotten a lot of attention and nobody's really solved for how we do that well in real estate. Um, there's a lot of people working on it. And, and I think we're going to see some really cool things over the next 10 years that really are focused on doing things with a real ESG bent to them and a real ESG focus. But so far today, there's very few in the real estate business. There's very few places you can turn and, and know that you either have one or the other, but there's not a lot of environmental and social governance happening. Um, I think some of the big companies have done a good job on the social piece. Uh, but environmental is tough. It's tough to retrofit an existing structure to make it environmentally friendly. Like it's just a hard thing to do. So that's why we started on the build side. That's awesome. And we're, we're going to get into that, but I do want you to, to hit something and, and man, uh, for a little pea brain like myself, you really broke that down in layman's terms to where it's something that now, now maybe I can go tell people about it's a great, great job there. <laughs> but so why would an operator, you know, institutional or of any size, you know, have a focus in it, AKA like, what are some of the benefits that you can get? Although the whole initiative is to provide value to the environment and society and people, what it, what can you as an operator get and benefit by doing that? Because there is some sort of return and break that down for us. 
Yeah, no, so I think one, it's just we, we should all be as humans doing the right thing, right? And we know, like, you know, being a, a growing up a conservative, I had a natural aversion to like environmentalists, right? But as I've learned over the past 10 years, there is a lot of truth in what's happening in the environment around us and, and in our world. So I think just being good stewards and being good humans, um, that's that's the first driver. That's what got me kind of where we are. But but in terms of economics, um, which I think at the end of the day, capital is always what drives change, right? It's always about money, unfortunately, and fortunately. So knowing that, you know, capital has to push this initiative and it's starting to happen. You know, BlackRock, you can read a lot of white papers that they put out on, on what their focus is and how they want to change. And then everybody else is kind of following suit. And so I think, you know, what it looks like for a small operator, we can create with our energy efficiency, um, a higher cap rate and a lower NOI, right? And so, um, sorry, a higher NOI and, and lower operating expenses by building differently. Right. And so when you reduce a resident's electric bill by call it $200 a month, there's obvious opportunity for increasing your cap rate and the overhead for doing so is, is de minimis, right? Like it's not a huge expense up front. It's not a huge expense monthly. Um, when you build that into the new construction piece. Now, if you had to take that and add solar to an existing home that is built, you know, where air flows through it all the time and it's not airtight, that's going to be a little bit of a different challenge, right? It's going to get a little too expensive probably to justify. But um, so I think that's part of it. But, the, you know, the, the other part is really looking at the long-term customer experience and what's going to drive um, what we hope drives our brand and what we hope will drive the industry to make change is the consumer demanding change in what that looks like. And so that's going to come only through continued education and alternative ways that a resident sees like options, right? And so the reason why I think branding in this space is so important, that's our differentiator, right? And so when you look at something, you know, you look at a company like Apple, what did Apple do for years? I mean, they provided the, the best product, they had the best brand, therefore they got paid for both of those things, right? And so that, you know, like Apple or not like Apple, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm Switzerland on the Android <laughs> Apple thing, right? Um, but either way, you can't argue with that they commanded a premium for their products that effectively were the same, you know, piece of metal and piece of silicone that a Windows-based computer was, and they got, you know, a super premium in price. So that's kind of our, our model is to look at how do we provide a superior product with superior long-term um, service and then get paid for doing so, right? So we're, we've started comparing ourselves apples to apples and just providing a better product. And then as we go forward, we'll, we'll work on the premium. That's awesome, man. I think uh, most of the time in real in like real estate, we always think like it's just about hard assets. But at the end of the day, it's all about being in the people business, no matter what way you want to slice it. And I think you, you tied all of that there together, and, and certainly have uh, it's it's really great and, and awesome perspective to hear just how you look at benefiting others that in turn does benefit you, and in the end, bottom line. So net zero, energy efficient. That's a product that you build um, and do a great job of it. The product's awesome, but like, there's a lot of things that you could argue, you know, could make a home more energy efficient. But you know, building a true net zero product, what are like the various components that you need to implement in your product in order to achieve that? 
Yeah, I mean, I think when you look at energy efficiency, what are your biggest energy drains in a home, right? In any kind of building, it's it's always, you know, air conditioning, heating, cooling, right? It's regulating temperature. Um, and then it's appliances, right? And so we started with the shell of the home. And so when we build a house out of structural insulated panels, you're basically building a Yeti cooler uh, as a house, right? And so if you've ever cut or seen someone cut into a Yeti cooler, it's got styrofoam on the inside, right? And then it has a, a sheeting on the outside, plastic in the case of Yeti, um, that really contains the fluctuation of heating and cooling inside, right? And so if you put ice in a Yeti cooler, you get ice for a long time, which means you have a drop in temperature for a long time. If you put heat packs in it, you're going to get the same effect, right? And so when you build a house that way, you're by default reducing your energy exposure and energy need by 60 to 70% before changing any of the other components of the home. So we build with structural insulated panels, our HERS scores, if you're familiar, uh, and if you're not, if you're not a builder, you probably wouldn't be familiar. HERS score, HERS is home energy rating score. Um, every builder in the country builds to whatever that HERS score is. You can get it on every new home. Traditionally, that number in the U.S. has been a HERS score of about 100. Lately, the whole, um, basically every municipality's codes have changed over time. and They continue to evolve. Those HERS scores now are in the kind of 70, 80 range for a traditional builder. And ours are in the low, high 20s, low 30s. And then we add solar, which takes us to zero. So you can extrapolate from that, that if an average builder, let's say, is around number 70 and our average is 35, we're 50% more energy efficient without doing anything else, right? And so by default, it costs less to operate, right? And then you add other things um, that add to the healthiness of the home, like controlling the indoor air exchange, obviously Energy Star appliances and, and high efficiency water heaters and things like that. And then you've just reduced the need for energy of that home, which then translates into real dollars. That's great. So, you know, this ESG and energy efficient, it's, it's, it's gotten a lot of attention as it should. Um, but there's, you know, that with anything that gets hyped like that, there's just a lot of misnomers and misconceptions. So, you know, from somebody that's truly operating and delivering a product that hits square in the bullseye of what, you know, this nation and world is continuing to try to do to be better to the environment, it's people, you know, break down though, like what people typically don't know, uh, or or misunderstand uh, uh, about doing all that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's just it's easy to just say, oh, you know, we're green or we're you know energy efficient because we use Energy Star appliances, which are great. Like we should all do that, right? It's an easy one. Almost everything is Energy Star now, but Department of Energy has a lot of good standards um, that large builders are starting to push their way to, right? And they're getting smaller certifications. And so I think, you know, from a greenwashing perspective, which is effectively, I think what you're asking, um, you know, it's, it's really looking at what is the impact really of either the building or the social piece of, of that business? What is the real impact that they're having, right? Is it just they're saying they're green because they threw energy star appliances in or because they did some small piece of a bigger picture that, it, that's where the governance piece comes in. Nobody talks about, right? So everybody talks about the environment with, with ESG. It's 80% of the conversations you hear environmental, I'd say 18 more percent are social and 2% if ever are on governance. 
the governance is the key that ties it all together, right? And so looking at the businesses that claim to be ESG focused, do their governances really drive that, right? Is it is it really the bottom line that's driving it or is it the E and the S that are really driving their business health? And it's really a long-term approach that makes sense in any business, right? It's just, you're not going to create short-term gains trying to be ESG focused. It's a long-term thinking, you know, it's a 20, 30, 40 year process that you're, that you're looking at down the road rather than how can I make a quick buck today? Anybody who's looking to make short-term profitability is probably not going to be ESG focused. That's awesome, man. And, and, you know, to me, and, and as you sort of just said, I think most people have a really hard time understanding the G in the governance part. So can you actually redefine governance for me? Because I, I think some listeners may, may have, and even myself admittedly, have a hard time truly understanding what you mean by governance. So I know you explained it again, but specifically the governance, get, get in a little more detail and, and help me at least better understand that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a worldview of how you operate, right? I mean, that's really what it comes down to. And, and putting that on paper in a way that puts some guardrails and some structure around what is acceptable and what isn't, right? And and that's, that's really all it is. It's, it's basically a, a defined worldview of, of what drives your business, right? And is your business driving, driven only by how much return or how much capital or how much money you can make? Or is your business driven by a bigger mission that then by nature is going to throw off cash, right? And, and for us, that's what it is. It's, it's mission first. Um, and then knowing that like we're, we're making good decisions. We want to be profitable. We have to be profitable to keep moving forward. Um, but you can do better by doing better. I mean, that's our that's our core value, um, and so that's our mission: is to do better by doing better. And uh, it's kind of the easy way to put it, right? And it's awesome how uh, mission also just times into the name of better homes. Uh, but it's really cool to hear sort of how the governance, you know, principles and mission therein help drive your long term strategy, as well as providing back to the environment and society and people and, and, and things of that nature. I just want to hit one more one more question on this topic, which is there is some financial economic benefits as you know, any operators in any realm, not not, not just real estate, um, you know, uh, drive towards and achieves uh, things in sort of this ESG realm. So like, can you just high level because I think there's a lot of them from the little that I know, you know, it's tax credits or like, what's the economic gains as you achieve this? And not to not to say that that is a core focus of specifically yours or others, but I just want to break that down quickly. Yeah. And I think it has to be part of the focus, right? Because without capital, um, and without profitability, there's no capital. Without capital, there's no business, right? So um, I think it has to be part of it. It just can't be, in my opinion, the only thing that drives you, right? And so um, in the real estate business, uh, there's a couple places where there's additional value that can be created. Again, it's got to be a long-term approach, right? So you have, you have lower operating expenses because you have a better built home. You're going to have lower monthly operating expenses because you have less energy need, right? So those places provide opportunities for kind of front end and back end. Front end, you charge more rent potentially because you have less, you know, less electrical, right? On the back end, it's, you have a, a, a purpose built, you know, house that is built with material that is made to last a lot longer. 
you're putting less wear and tear on the major items in your in, uh, major mechanical systems in the home. So your, your AC has less load. You know, you're, you're providing better throughput for all of the energy in the house. So appliances generally are going to last longer. Uh, but these are long-term approaches that, you know, we're just in the beginning of, of showing data that has enough credibility to say, hey, you can depend on a net zero home, especially one built with structural insulated panels, to provide an NOI that is 12% better or 6% better, right? The other piece, in, you know, part of your NOIs is insurance. And so here in Florida, insurance is a big deal. Um, because of the way we build, we have a natural aversion to fire, we have a natural aversion to wind. So um, that provides a, a, a savings on the insurance side that you have to back in and into and look at the NOI. So I think those things are, are the kind of more obvious ones, all based on the efficiency piece. Again, back to the brand piece, I think there is a, over time, there is a significant value in creating a brand that, that put a stake in the ground that says, when you live in one of our houses, you're going to have a healthy living experience. We're going to take care of you. We're going to make sure that we provide great service and you're going to breathe better. You're going to have a better experience inside your home, provided you do you know your part, right? You can't cook with, with gas every night and put your grill in the house or something, but you know, if you, uh, if you kind of live like a normal human being, um, there's a potential that there's going to be a healthier environment for you inside these houses. So uh, I think those are all places. And the, the part we haven't touched on that I should have really focused on a little bit in the S conversation um, is how do we get to affordability, right? And so if you take the extra NOI bump out of it and you just give that piece to the resident, um, you, you're going to have kind of market rate rents but you're going to provide more affordability um, to, to an occupant. And we've got a massive problem with affordable housing, right? And so that's the other part of what I love and that I'm really excited about is that I think we can get enough scale with our build technology um, to really provide an affordable housing product that's truly affordable. Because um, I think that's another thing, right? Attainable, affordable um, piece that we don't always touch on because it's always about maximizing rents. But I think there's a, a long-term strategy that if you can really solve affordable housing with an ESG product, sky's the limit. You're going to have better financing. You touched on tax benefits, building to a, an, a zero energy ready standard, um, significant tax benefits for doing so as a builder and as an operator. Um, so there's another place. Uh, I think there's an opportunity down the road for better financing. We're not seeing it yet. Maybe it's just because we don't have enough scale, but I think there's some green bond initiatives that are out there. There's some, there's some help in, uh, in a lot of the, the bills that have been passed over the past 24 months um, that we can kind of go after. Again, it's going to take some scale. It's going to take some ability to go nowhere to find it, but um, financing benefits as well. That's awesome, man. And I'm, I'm going to use a big C word and it, I, I do truly think there's an affordability crisis. I think all the numbers show it with some realm of low 40% affordability across the nation, which is well above what, what and where it needs to be. And that's why I personally, and from what you're saying as well, is a huge believer in afford, in sort of building or renovating or owning you know, rentals in this affordable median realm, because there's, there's still going to be so much demand. And especially if uh, things don't, aren't, continue to be affordable for people. Um, we, we really need to continue to drive that product in a number of ways. And clearly, clearly you're doing that. So as we depart, my last question, man, you've talked a lot about 
you think about things long term. I just know you'd have a very strategic and visionary mind. So what are some of the trends that you see moving forward in new construction as you, you know, fast forward uh, a couple of years down the road? Uh, land us with that one, man. Yeah, I mean, I think that one thing we haven't touched on at all that I think answers that question, and the most important thing in my mind is the labor force is reducing, is, is shrinking every year. And so if we don't solve building a house with less friction and taking less hands, we're going to continue to have an affordability crisis and it's going to get worse because the less people there are to swing hammers, the more those hammers cost to be swung. Therefore, the higher the price, right? Despite, and, and it's the same thing when it comes to manufacturing and the goods that we use, right? So the labor force is going to continue to drive. And if we don't solve for reducing friction in the build environment and solve for how do we automate as much as we can or solve for growing a labor force, one of those two, uh, we're going to continue to have an affordability issue and, and a crisis that's going to continue to grow. No, uh, that's that's some some really 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 insightful feedback there, and um, Corey, man, I just want to say thank you. Um, I hope and I, I hope you like the nickname Smooth Operator, but I think you've really <laughs> lived up and shown that here to all of our listeners. Um, and so I just very much uh, thank you for that. And at this point, we're going to call it a wrap. Um, but, uh, a lot of what we've talked about is going to continue on in a number of ways. And Corey, you've provided some great insights. So, um, thank you all for tuning in here. This closes out another great episode of the real estate of things. Check us out every Tuesday for new episodes to launch with really smart and insightful people like Corey here as well. Uh, you can always check us out on our website, www.realestateofthings.co. And we will continue to bring you some high value. But Corey, thank you for doing that here, man, Mr. Smooth Operator. And just appreciate you, brother. Well, Nate, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Are you a real estate investor looking for the right lender that can finance all your deals and help you scale? Lima One Capital has the best suite of loan products in the industry bar none. Whether that's fix and flips, fix and holds, building new construction, or buying rental properties, they have incredible financing solutions for it all. A reliable, common-sense lender is one of the most important parts of your investment team, and that's exactly what you get with Lima One. Let Lima One Capital show you how they've helped thousands of real estate investors scale and increase their wealth. Check out LimaOne.com or call 800-259-0595 to speak with a consultant in preparation for your next project. Thank you for joining us today on the Real Estate of Things podcast. Subscribe and tune in weekly for new content from the industry's best while we continue to unpack the nuances of this dynamic market. Follow us across social media for additional insights and analysis on the topics covered in each episode. And remember to rate, review, and share the show.